Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is, first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Welcome to Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University and what will be the last show for a while for my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Maria Teflaga. Maria, I think this is your last one for a while because of a period of maternity leave. That's right. Yes, yes. I think this is this, this will be my, my last hurrah around the Democracy Sausage barbecue for... For a little while, yes. For a little while, yes. but uh, we'll be trying to coax you back in uh, either, either sort of... I'm sure of, I'll get bored. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. maybe. I don't know. I don't know if you can I'm get sure bored. I'm sure my hands will be full. I don't know if you get bored when you haven't been to sleep for like 18 hours it's or It's a different kind of bored, yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, um, that's going... We'll, we'll, we'll be talking to you from time to time when, when, when you are available and we look forward to that being possible, of course, and to everything else that happens that's good in your life in the... Yes, yes, thank you. Term. Now, look, we're going to be talking about housing today, uh, as you know, but before we do that, I thought we can't really let the day go by without mentioning something sig- significant that's happening that's today, right. which is today, as we record, the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison is giving his so-called valedictory speech, his, his outgoing speech, and uh, I guess filling in some details about whatever high-flying corporate job in the defence and foreign policy sector that he's going to. That's right, that's right. And, I mean, I thought it was quite interesting that um, Morrison has already indicated that he would like to be more like Julia Gillard than some of his other uh, prime ministerial predecessors after they've left the job. What did you make of that? Well, it's quite a shift, isn't it, when you think about it, because he was – it's hard to think of someone who was less like Julia Gillard as prime minister – but I do think it's a lovely aspiration, and the reason I say that is because I think Julia Gillard has been the model of a former prime minister. She's been very circumspect with her public comments, but and, and therefore her commentary has sort of the tendency to kind of buy back into the political debate, to be offering free advice, to be endlessly justifying whatever it was that she did and the ways in which she was misunderstood and so forth, which is pretty much the lot of most former prime ministers. She hasn't done that. And I think right across the political spectrum, there's a lot of respect for the way Julia Gillard has conducted herself, but also the, the the constructive things that she's done. You know, the it's been very service oriented. It yes. has been, and her work with Beyond Blue and her work with uh, uh, the Gender Institute and these sorts of things. Uh, I've probably called it the wrong name, but the the, the whole it's Women's Global Leadership or that's something like the, that. Yes, yeah. that's it. Yes, you know, the way she has conducted herself has been a model of sort of continued, as you say, service. Morrison, on the other hand, I think, well, we'll see how he goes, but his prime ministership was uh, really characterised by a whole lot of other things that you would say are less positive, including a very uh, a great reluctance, a profound reluctance to ever be accountable for anything that went wrong. And a hell of a lot of things did go wrong, or a hell of a lot of mistakes were made, some policies that were utterly disastrous and calamitous, like, like robo-debt, for example, but... You know, he's known for those those statements like "I don't hold a hose, mate," and and then the notorious "It's not a race," which he said in Nemesis. You'll recall Maria when he was asked, "Did he regret that?" I'm pretty sure his words were along the lines of, "Well, I I regret how it was taken." <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. He's sorry if people are upset. Yeah. 
He's not actually. Well, sorry if they're so sorry. mentally incapacitated as to un- yes. have understood yes. it in a in in the wrong way because yes. there was nothing wrong with it at all. I mean, I th- I think it was a kind of an interesting construction, right? Like, he on one level, I suppose Scott Morrison is right. Like, had a different prime minister said such a thing, it might not have been interpreted in that way. But what he's sort of failing to think about in the sort of chain of causation is. Why was the Australian public so quote unwilling to give him the benefit of the doubt? Yeah, he had because form. of a pattern of behaviour. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah. And the uh, I don't hold a hose, which had been an explosive statement at the time of trying to justify being away in Hawaii during the bushfire crisis, which had been going on for a long time. It sounded like, look, there's nothing I can do. Well, I think most people would say, look, we we weren't looking for you to come back to fight the fires notwithstanding that Tony Abbott did actually do that kind of thing. <laughs> and I say that with, uh, with, with due respect for Tony Abbott because I think uh, whatever else you say, that was uh, his, his ongoing commitment to um, yeah, being service. A, yeah, yeah, to service and to being a, um, a volunteer firefighter uh, can't be gainsaid. I think it was genuine and uh, something he... Uh, and he, remains so, yeah. And he, and he continued to do it as Prime Minister, which was an interesting sort of curio around this, that there had been in recent history a Prime Minister who literally did hold a hose. But going back to the point, I mean, saying I don't hold a hose was a suggestion like there's nothing I could do, whereas this was a moment of national crisis and... At those moments, people are looking for leadership, for for a commitment from the government to uh, for attention, you know, for 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 the government to be seen to be doing things, and for a prime minister to be doing something that's kind of hard to quantify, but it's about being there. Well, it's about and- yeah, it's about being there, it's being present. I mean, like if I guess an unfair but but really stark contrast is. Zelensky saying, I don't need a ride, I need rockets, mm. right? Mm. You know, like mm. I'm not going to abdicate my post. Yeah. Um, which and is, I think, think, what people were looking yeah. for. Yeah, exactly. And if we think about Anna Bly in Queensland during the floods and, and numerous other leaders at times, Kevin Rudd, you know, walking ankle deep in water, carrying a a, a, a suitcase for, for someone, helping to uh, move things out of a, a flooded apartment along the Brisbane River there. I mean... These things, these these symbols are about a leader who's with his or her community and doing and, what yeah, is necessary. Collectively and ex- suffering and participating yeah, in that. Yeah, right, and hearing about it, understanding holiday. it, yeah, not being yeah, somewhere else. That's right. Uh, and and then of course there was the way that was into you know, the way subsequent interviews, um, I think there was the I think it might have been sixty minutes where he kind of basically dropped Jenny and it. Yes, um, it was, yes. It had been Jenny's she decision. She then took responsibility to take the kids to yeah to Hawaii. And yeah. people looked at these things and they thought, so it's the staff's fault that they didn't tell him about this or that, and it's it's uh, you know it's the family's fault, or or at least you know they they they'd pressed him into it or whatever it was. So this had become uh, a pattern. The other thing that I think's uh, ironic about the way he's sort of nominating Julia Gillard is that in the interview in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, that my former colleague James Masola did with him, where he nominates that Gillard as the sort of ideal that he would he would seek to to mimic, he in the same interview starts giving opinions about. <laughs> you know Peter Dutton's performance, uh, saying that you know he's done a great job They're unifying great mates, the party. Those two. <laughs> um, but uh, but then says you know Dutton needs to win you know give attention to winning back the teal seats, which with which I happen to agree actually. But Dutton's obviously going a different way. So it's a very New South Wales centric view, Mark. You yeah, know? it must be yeah. a very city centric yeah, view. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And and of course you know we learned a lot about Morrison after he left, even more in a sense. You know, with his speech to the to the WA uh, Pentecostal group where he said we don't trust in governments, we don't trust in the United Nations, we trust in God, and. People think really you just. That I just sort don't of quite understand how God fits in the chain of delegation, but you know, fair enough. I mean, no, no, and but to be not I mean, to be too glib, a, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I his post prime ministerial tenure, I mean, has been sort of interesting, and there's been all those like rumours swelling around that one of the reasons why he's taken so long to leave was that he. He struggled to find somewhere to go, like in terms of employment. And I suppose it will be interesting to sort of see what place he carves out for himself in our like national life. Um, well, he seems to be planning to carve out a place for himself in American national life. And there's a lot that's American about the way 
uh, Morrison kind of presented himself and that whole use of faith and the prioritization of personal faith as a guide and so forth and the comments that I just quoted, you know, about who we should trust and so forth, I think they ring they ring poorly in Australian ears. We, we are a, a much less kind of, we're more secular, more defiantly secular and more cynical, I think, but also more practical uh, people than that. And what, from what we understand of what Morrison's going on to do, he's, he's, well, for a start, he's going to the US to spruik a book that he's written about faith, again, this yep. whole thing. And he's going to be connected, as he says, with some global corporate uh, interest in the defence and security sector, and he's already connected with a number of American conservative organisations. And he talks about Trump being of no threat to Australian national interests. I think that is patently wrong and absurd. But it says everything about Morrison's worldview. He praises Trump as the man who, in his first term, awakened the world to the danger of China, which I think reminds us how poorly. That uh, uh, Morrison politicised China as as an issue yeah. as prime minister, and so yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to say, and a lot that probably will be said, and more to to be understood about what guided uh, Morrison. But I mean, it wasn't, it's, it's he's not a successful prime minister. I, no, broadly, I I would um, agree with that. Though, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't say he was. I, I'd put him in the middle of the pack, but sort of at the the, the lower end of that distribution because there are certainly prime ministers that have failed at a, at a greater rate. I mean, I think it's an interesting point you make about his, um, I suppose, American ethos. And and I suppose that actually reflects the the fact that he didn't really know how to respond in the, in the fires, right? Like, um, I think it's something that we've just discussed in the past is that Morrison never really seemed to understand the concept of mateship in a broader kind of way, right? That kind of collective identity mm. that is important to um, the national ethos in this country. Like many of the things he did were not the way a mate would behave. He understood it like an advertising person understands yes. something. He understood the symbols but of it. But not what it really meant. But he didn't feel yeah. it. Yeah. He couldn't so manipulate he... it like John Howard and transform it into a different thing. Yeah, because he couldn't really live it. Because he didn't understand it, yeah. yeah. Um, and I suppose it kind of raises the question, I mean, like, you know, it's not like he hasn't had a really bad rap. I mean, do you think he really is as bad as his tractors say? Well, look, I, the one thing I would say is that his early period in the in the pandemic was, um, I think, quite effective, and there were some really quite encouraging things that occurred. It, it's easy to forget these things now, but in those early days when the ACTU was looking for ways to protect employees, businesses were worried, the peak bodies were all uh, in touch with the government, there was this you know, this impending shutdown of everything and the implications of that were huge. The economic implications were, were huge. And I remember he said things like, and this is not a direct quote, but he said things like, uh, you know, there are no bosses and workers in, in, in Australia anymore, there are just Australians. And it and it sort of had echoes of, you know, sort of Bob Hawke's bringing Australia together, kind of everyone pitching in we're all we, we, we don't have these kind of sectional interests at the moment we have a national interest and we need to all be looking after each other and and putting ideolo ideology to to one side and there was a fair bit in the policy levers that were then pulled that actually reflected that um, he took some time to agree to the idea of wage subsidies uh, after the ACTU proposed it labor backed it the government opposed it for a while, but then then came up with JobKeeper, and I don't think people could say JobKeeper wasn't generous enough. In fact, it was far too generous in terms of its, you know, its kind of um, accountability. Oh, you mean the mechanism. companies that um, were able to basically get money and never have to pay it back? Yeah, yeah including yeah. companies that actually were not very, only did popular. okay, but did better during the. Uh, there, there were companies that, and I was talking to a, a company a, um, manager the other day, owner the other day, uh, who was making the point that his company actually did better as a result of the pandemic because people couldn't spend their money on other things so they were spending their money uh, effectively um, you on know online of, yeah. as it were with his company and they they'd actually predicted in good faith that they were going to do you know they were in deep trouble they had employees and costs and so forth as it happened they went up and they in this case that company did pay back the money but there was no requirement for companies to pay back that money the government justified it on the basis that look this is emergency policy it needs to be done quickly but we're talking about i think 80 
$89 billion or something in JobKeeper alone. But they did double the dole and they did a number of other things. So I think that was good. They closed the border. They took a little time to close the border to the United States. Again, that kind of American exceptionalism thing. And America, for that period of time, was the prime source of overseas infection coming into Australia. Uh, and so, yeah, kind of interesting. But in Nemesis, we saw a couple of Labor premiers, notably Mark McGowan and Daniel Andrews, praising Morrison to a degree for his creation of National Cabinet and his willingness to work with them to solve problems. And I don't think we can just simply dismiss that. There was an atmosphere of that, but I would say, and this, and, I, and again, I don't want to overstate this because I think there was a genuine uh, feeling of trying to get good policy outcomes here, but I would say Morrison absolutely had to show national leadership in the early days of the pandemic because the bushfires had which had literally just been weeks before, the I don't hold a hose and all that had just been weeks before. First uh, COVID confirmed case in Australia was 25th of January. So that's how early it was in 2019, in 2020, sorry. Um, and um, Morrison really, really needed to rescue his prime ministership. And as it happened, the pandemic provided that reason, the, the agenda. That- yeah, that's right. The first term, was, the first year rather, was much more successful because he was very pragmatic and he's always been quite ideologically flexible except on these sort of personal religion dimensions. Mm. It was the second year where where the, the government sought to cut the states out of certain service delivery things like the vaccines in order to claim credit for the rollout by using GPs Yes, instead, there was a real, you could where things, see that. You know, you? things yeah. started to go off the rails. You're putting politics basically before good public policy and implementation. But we should probably move on. We probably should. I could uh, talk about Morrison for a long time and uh, (laughs) some people might agree or many more might disagree, I don't know. But uh, yes, that is uh, a moment when, and we don't have them that often when, although we've had them more often than is normally the case of Prime Ministers leaving, but uh, thought it was worth just sort of marking uh, that moment when a Prime Minister is announcing his departure from the parliament. But we are going to be talking about housing and uh, May Aziz, spokesperson for the Everybody's Home campaign and also a deputy director at Anglicare, is joining us. May, um, welcome. Thanks Again, for having me. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage. You've been on it's a few times before. It has been quite a while, hasn't it? It's sort of four and a half years or something since we last I, spoke a to A lot you. has happened. Yes, <laughs> I believe the yes. studio has upgraded in size because I think when yeah. you were with us last, we were in, we were in that cupboard in the... In the in the Crawford School, yeah. yeah. When I was thinking a lot had happened, I actually meant more having having heard everything that you've just said about Morrison. The bushfires happened right after, um, I think, a couple of months after the last time I was on, and then we had the years of COVID, and yeah, you know, and that was on the back been, of it. It's been an amazing. That was on the of back years. of a sustained drought as well, mm. which the government was not handling well either. So mm. there was some tension inside the coalition over that. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a huge. Uh, there's been a huge amount going on, and there's of course a huge amount going on internationally. But mm. domestically, mm. one of the big debates that's been going on that you've been dealing with and which I think, uh, I don't think it's stretching uh, a credulity to say that uh, will be an issue all the way to this coming election, is this issue of housing, Mm. uh, which has become increasingly unaffordable. It seems to be a policy area that's been bedeviled by a kind of a, you know, like a a fundamental values flaw in it, which is that it's a policy area if you think about housing overall, mm. that is designed to benefit people who don't have a housing problem. Exactly You know what I mean? Right. People already have their houses, have uh, housing policy mechanisms through the through tax, negative gearing, capital gains tax and the like, which benefit them. Mm. But there's a lot of people who don't have houses, which is which is what you're concerned about. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the thing that's... Um really baffling and and kind of upsetting is that Australia used to do pretty well, um, you know, pretty well at uh, providing housing to people who needed it and doing it affordably. I had a report out um, over summer just just a few weeks ago, basically sort of trying to explain why are we in this housing crisis. And, mm. and we looked at the history of housing in Australia. And in the 40s and 50s, you had Labor governments that basically created public housing. Uh, so public housing didn't didn't exist um, in Australia until, until uh, the, the mid-40s. And they built it up really quickly and it had an impact really quickly and it became popular very quickly and lots of people lived in public housing for a long time. So teachers, public servants, construction workers, we're here in Canberra where 70%, which at one time was 70% public housing. 
um, which is pretty pretty amazing. And you can still see it and, written in the fabric of the suburbs, can't you? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that was that was how we provided housing for a long time. So um, about one in three renters, right up until the mid eighties, had the government as a landlord, which which is a lot. That uh, mm. uh, feels like a well before I was born, but um, <laughs> it's yeah. I was about to say can't really remember it. I'm like, well, I wasn't there, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I can. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and at the high point, about one in four new builds was actually being built by the government, and. One of the things that happened in the 80s was there was a big global shift. It wasn't just something that happened in Australia, but um, a big shift away from uh, governments providing providing housing for people. And all of the money and the policy levers went into the private sector. So the report looks at those two factors. So um, government supply of housing and then also the, the tax levers is, is sort of the, the, the second part of it um, because we're spending a really enormous amount of money we're set to lose $150 billion over the next 10 years to the uh, negative gearing tax deductions and capital gains tax deductions. And we spend $1.6 billion a year on social housing, right? So this the, the amount of money uh, the government is spending providing housing itself versus how much it's spending propping up the, the private sector. And yet it, it – it, sorry to interrupt you, but it, it yeah. kind of – apologists for this policy mix argue that – negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions mm. as they relate to property um, help in the – that's been the sort of argument, yeah. hasn't it, that they actually encourage uh, the provision mm. of housing that people buy in order to – buy a second house in or, mm. or, or apartment in order to rent it out. Therefore, mm. they're helping with supply. You can see the flaw in that, of course. Yeah. Um, but that's the kind. That's been the the argument, hasn't it? And that and that letting the market do it is more efficient than mm. big government instrumentalities doing it. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the one of the changes that's been really interesting over the past couple of decades, just thinking about the way the the tax concessions have really distorted the way housing is provided is the wrong people really have been lured into becoming suppliers of housing. It mm. is actually a problem that we are so reliant on um, kind of hobby landlords to deliver so much housing in Australia. Like this is a problem. <laughs> it is a problem we should be aiming to fix. Up until the mid-90s, most landlords in Australia were positively geared and that's actually a good thing because it means that if a tenant needs a bit of relief or they need a repair done, um, you know, it's it's fairly straightforward. It also means that um, you know, if there's an interest rate increase, the landlord isn't sent into a complete meltdown. We've so, seen. So I'll just I'll just stop you there just for a sec, just to make the point that by positively positively geared, you mean that the landlord is yeah. actually making on an ongoing basis a profit. It's costing them yeah. less to provide that house yeah. than they're getting. That's right. Most landlords used to own their investment property outright, and their money was coming from rental income. Right. Um, and this and gave them the, the the capacity to withstand some short term shocks like. Having to provide like a new that's water heater. Investment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and we've also seen that landlord behaviour um, in terms of just rent increases has changed a lot over the past couple of decades. We're seeing much more and more frequent and higher rent increases. It's now the norm that rents go up like ten percent, um, you know, ten percent a year. Rent asking rents have actually gone up by seventy five percent since the start of the pandemic, which is astronomical. And is that about seventy five percent? Yeah, according wow. to SQM, in, in four years. In four years, yeah, since uh, March twenty twenty. That's using the, the SQM data on asking rents. That's insane. So that's I, – I don't know anyone who's had a 75%, uh, you know, pay increase. No. Um, so, you know, that's – you know, it's 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 a lot of money and I, I really think that this is – this this explains the change in, in landlord behaviour, the, the kinds of people who we've kind of lured into becoming suppliers of housing. It is a problem and so when we say we need to – take these concessions away, you know, people who are critical of that, in a sense, they're right. We need to replace it with something, you know, and and the argument of our campaign is that the government does need to step up and start building homes again itself. Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess um, I suppose the, yeah. other, the other alternative that is put forward is that um, you get large institutional investors mm. like super funds who are then a similar or an akin style landlord mm. to a government that could be regulated and has the benefit of not being like a a mum and dad mm. um, landlord who either may be really good or really, really arbitrary, mm. right, mm. to put it politely, yeah. um, you know, and I'm sure people have had 
both kinds of landlords. Yeah, absolutely. And in other countries, private rental markets look a bit more like that. There are more institutional investors, more kind of big landlords. You know, I think anyone who's ever had a job working for kind of a a small mum and dad operation knows that these things sound great and romantic, but they're not always... Amazing. <laughs> they're, yeah. not, they're not always, they're, you know, they're don't always kind, deliver the best results. They're the kinds uh, yeah. of jobs you struggle to disconnect from. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so um, many other countries su- supply their housing this way. They have a mix of, you know, um, the countries that are doing really well at affordability have the, the government doing a lot more heavy lifting, but they also have many more institutional landlords, more institutional providers of housing. And that's because governments can, which is one of the reasons why they do it in the first place, is they can apply policies other mm. than just the economic, that like the this, this sort of commercial uh, um, imperatives associated with that mm. contract. So, uh, for example, public housing authorities in the states in Australia uh, played critical roles in providing Mm. affordable housing, uh, housing that was lower than the market rate uh, so that people in lower socioeconomic groups could afford to live where they Mm. lived and, you know, were accommodated. You take that out of the equation and you've got a big instrument of downward pressure on prices taken out of Mm. the equation for a start, but you've also got uh, just a, a, you're open to, as it were, this whole kind Mm. of um, new ethic, which is about, you know, the commercial return all the time. Absolutely. And a lot of people who lived in public housing didn't live in public housing for life. Some of them bought their public home and that was a good thing because they were being replenished, you know, like it it wasn't taking away from stock in the way that it does now when we sell public assets, we're much less likely to Mm. replace them. But a lot of people, you know, if you were a teacher and you you had your, your home provided to you by a state education commission or something, often you lived in that kind of home for 10 or 15 years and you saved to buy your own place. And it's a big part of why people were able to to get ahead. Construction workers were, you know, a key local government used to provide them a lot of housing. People who ne- maybe didn't necessarily see themselves as living in public housing, but but the government was a major supplier. Yeah. Let's yeah. take a quick break and continue this in a moment. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards revealing a most amazing scene. Standing Columns of Fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Now, when we were uh, talking a moment ago about uh, you know the role of public instrumentalities, health commissions, housing trusts, uh, sorry, housing commissions and housing mm-hmm. trusts and so forth, uh, we were talking about the, the way they could provide housing that and and service a part of the market, a huge need in the market of people who don't have uh, you know the means to be operating against you know the, uh, the those with a lot of wealth. Uh, now everyone's in together, of course, right? And uh, so we see these appalling. Figures like the one you quoted a minute ago, 75% increase over basically four years in rents, just absolutely crippling. Mm. And, you know, that that sort of explains it right there. Maria, I'm interested in also just zooming out for a minute, just thinking about the kind of macro role of the state when we were actually doing this. Because in the state I came from, for example, South Australia, the South Australian Housing Trust was an absolutely critical part of building the South Australian economy in the post-war years. Uh, you know, the 10-pound poms that came and, and, and were settled in the northern suburbs of, of Adelaide around the GMH, the General Motors Holden plant, for example. These were So it became a, a key part of an overall economic development strategy and it was consistent with a view of the responsibilities of government and the intervention of the government pretty well directly in the economy, not just in terms of housing but in terms of... Um, as I say, providing ethos, yeah. yeah, and providing uh, workers for industries that were critical to the to the creation of of broader economic development in the state, and that's that's been a story around 
the states of, of Australia and probably elsewhere. But we've kind of walked away from that. You know, that whole May was talking about the period in the, from about the 1980s when those yeah the new bodies, public management agenda yeah yeah and I mean actually when you look at this if you look at housing um it, it is an issue that is plaguing Western democratic nations like across the globe but the, the the problem is actually far more acute in in countries that I suppose have gone further down the new public management pathway um, than others so so for example I think the UK has seen a 22 percent reduction in people who are aged between 24 and 34 being able to own their own home whereas Germany I think is sitting around three percent which has a very different sort of relationship between mm. like a, basically a corporatist model of um, state intervention and the state's role in the economy versus you know the Thatcherite agenda right which would be an extreme and New Zealand also has a severe public housing crisis or just a severe housing crisis that's akin mm. to ours they went further down the new public management path and we did Canada um, is the same but this this is an issue kind of everywhere and I, and I guess what's kind of important to kind of note about it is that it is this multifactorial mm. dimension that that may has been sort of discussing like it's about how governments are or are not uh, participating in the provision of housing it's it's how we think about housing as an actual good the sort of tax concessions um, that we've we've made and then I suppose a bunch of other like disrupting forces that I think mm. your report talks about as well, mm. right? Um, Airbnb and the like. And and I and I'll make one more point, and then I'm going to ask you a mm. question, May. I saw that in the Herald today there was um, polling done as part of the Resolve poll around mm. a bunch of tax changes around um, mm. housing, and uh, what that poll seemed to show was that. Um, well, I, yeah, I didn't quite agree with what, how the journalists interpreted it, but to me that poll seemed to say there was no majority for any tax change except for suspending stamp duty for first-home buyers, which had a 59% support. And the reason why I think that has 59% support is that that hasn't been really discussed. No one has discussed where the alternative source of funding will come from, which will be a land tax, right, <laughs> to, to do things like that, whereas as, you know whether or not it's we tackle the the capital gains discount which which seems to be the one that is actually probably the most economically efficacious or negative gearing which is the absolute bête noire um you know we don't seem to have um, a consensus around how to kind of uh deal with these big sort of structural levers and what is i think frustrating about this debate is that it is actually multifactorial but we people are looking for like a magic wand Mm. And that's not really how it's gonna gonna kind of mm. play out. Um, but yeah, I mean, May, your report talks a bit about like Airbnb and the impact of that. Can mm. you kind of give us that bit of the picture? Yeah. So I've got I've got an opinion piece up um, at the Guardian um, that went up yesterday about Airbnb. And one of the things I find really fascinating is journalists and all sorts of people talk about it like it's its own issue, like it's its its, its own thing. Um, it has been driven by the tax concessions that we have at the moment. So people who are short-stay hosts have access to the same negative gearing and capital gains tax deductions that a hobby landlord would. And what that means is you can have a listing up online. Your home can be empty and within the rules you can actually claim deductions on things like um, your interest repayments, rates, cleaning. Well, yeah, you're making a loss because yeah. it's not rented. Right in a short stay. Well, it's not rented I mean, every day. Yeah, I, yeah. I feel yeah. like Airbnb is the most is insane example of this because you went over the the argument um, of the proponents of keeping um, negative gearing and, and CGT concessions that they they will say that it, it it adds to supply. There is no argument to having it for for available to people who are short stay hosts. Like, what is the public benefit in propping up? <laughs> A, a short stay, a short stay rental like that, and we know um, that the ATO is actually warning people that you can't just claim these things all year round. We assume you're holidaying them in them yourself at some point. Yeah, and, <laughs> so and otherwise, that's, that's got to be a red flag that yeah. people that these are they're already pretty generous and they're yeah. probably being abused. But but it is fascinating that people go straight to things like vacancy taxes and Airbnb levies instead of just looking at the same tax concessions that are overheating um, the rest of the housing market. And to be clear, I don't oppose those things. I, d I don't oppose a vacancy tax. I don't oppose an Airbnb levy. But I don't think that those are the things that are going to tackle what's actually driving the uptake of of Airbnb. It's it's a symptom of the problem that we've got um, in the the broader housing system, which is 
just an unfair system. That's, that's right. I mean, like, I think one of the things that is actually often kind mm. of overlooked is that I don't think people really understand, like, what negative gearing is actually for. It's just mm. like this, this sort of, like, buy a rental property and you'll mm. negatively gear it and you'll somehow make money. Whereas, you know, I mean, the data actually kind of shows is that it's actually only like the top half of income earners actually make any money off negative gearing because they have a high enough income in which to deduct the losses. They have the uh, access to accounting resources to arrange their tax finances in a way that makes sense for them to actually be making this loss. And, and the point of negative gearing is it's it's supposed to be an instrument mm. to encourage people to make investments, right, because you forego the ability to use your money mm. whilst you are investing in something. And that could be for all kinds of investments. It doesn't have to necessarily be mm. for, for housing. It's just that the combination of, and the data is very clear on this actually, the combination of negative gearing plus uh, taking the capital gains tax. That's the that's the profit you yeah. make from selling your asset and the government used to tax you 25% mm. of that profit. You got to keep three quarters of it. Sorry, the government took three quarters of it or, you know, or, or taxed it, right? Um, and, I think and it was a 50% rate that you get taxed at 25%. That's right, that's right. Mm. And then that increased to 50%. So therefore the windfall you gain when you sell your your asset, your investment, whatever, has gone up. And so the combination of being able to claim the the money you make from basically the value of land increasing, right, uh, plus the, the ability if you have the right financial mm. setup to essentially run your properties at a loss because of because you're borrowing money to buy them, right? Mm. That's basically what it is, um, is creating this sort of perverse incentive. Mm. And, and I think the data is also quite clear that only 20% of negatively geared properties are new builds. So mm. it's actually pretty negligible how much mm. supply is being added. And you buy a new house, that's actually not generating – sorry, you buy a existing house, you're not – generating any new income or investment in Australia if you if you if you invest in shares technically that company should build something innovate be productive right so it's 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 a problem it's not just a housing problem like mm. it's an economy problem mm. yeah it's what- a feather bedding problem as well it's like we, we we have this vast you know raft of people in middle australia who have the who have access to these tax breaks and they're basically the, the existence of them closes out a lot of other people from what is a fundamental need, housing. Yeah. I mean, we often hear governments say that the governments have no greater responsibility than the security of the nation. There's an argument that if you look at security in a broader sense, that begins with the basics like housing and food and access to yeah. healthcare. The idea that you that we have governments that don't take that as seriously, that leave that up to the market and then have distortions in the market, mm. such as being able to negatively gear your Airbnb, and then they go on about supply, as you say. Mm. If they wanted to put a lever about supply, make those Airbnbs available to renters, yeah. like long-term renters, that will do something about supply. It seems to me that the supplier argument or that supply contention that is put forward mm is a red herring. It's put forward all the time as a way of not doing what it is that is being proposed to be done and and do something else. I mean, it's a, for example, the, the sort of dog whistle there is the states need to be releasing more and more land all the time. Now, you know, that may be true. We've got a growing population. You need more space. But, um, you know, endlessly expanding these great urban mm-hmm. sprawls out into the middle of nowhere is only mm-hmm. part of the story. I think that's um, totally spot on. One of the things that I, I, I say all the time, um, and people often don't believe it, is that we've never had more homes per person than we have now, right? We've, we've, it's actually been going up at every single census for the last 30 years. And what that tells us is that supply alone can't fix this problem and that the crisis that we've got at the moment isn't just a, a supply problem, it's an inequality and distribution mm, problem. Mm. Um, so I, I certainly don't want to sound like I'm anti-supply. You know, I, there's there's this I, – I feel like the sort of um, – NIMBY YIMBY debate is a really toxic one that I, I don't particularly like getting drawn into. But what I would say is just just building stuff and hoping that it becomes affordable and it gets to people who, who need it. Uh, the market just hasn't got a track record of doing that. If you're going to build a whole lot more and the New South Wales government is doing, um, you know, has this agenda around upzoning. But it's it's all about 
building and density and there's nothing on the distribution side, there's nothing on the affordability side, there's nothing there requiring developers to do what, you know, what we call inclusionary zoning, which is mm. where they uh, have to build some affordable or social housing <laughs> as, part, as part of their of development. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or pay into a fund for 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 social housing or something like that, um, which you is know, what so institutional we, investors are yeah. are much better at doing at. Mostly because the government mm. says, "Well, you you have to by law," mm. and they just do it. Yeah, mm. and it's the security of the investment as much as the return mm. that works in yeah. you know across their whole portfolio of investments. But we mm. interrupted you. You were on. No, the that's whole. what we do all the time. On this, this yeah. could be called you know democracy yeah. interruption. Yeah. Totally. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I think I I do think that we are in danger of doing the same things that we've been doing for the last couple of decades and doing more of them. And um, one of the problems that we've got is that it's a really attractive narrative for government because in that telling of the story, all they need to do is remove some regulations. You know, <laughs> all they need to do is make it easier for the private sector to build. Um, they don't need to do the what is really difficult work of tax reform. Um, and, well, you know, well, to we be know fair, it's difficult. Huh? Yeah, but to um, be fair, Labor is... Sort of tinkering at the edges, mm. at least with this. But you know, this uh, the help to buy scheme is a shared equity mm. scheme, right? And uh, the uh, this is what's currently in contention in Parliament, mm. which the Greens are saying they will vote against unless they see other things done in the negative gearing, mm. capital gains tax concession space, mm. and they want to see caps on rents as well, mm. uh, which has been roundly kind of ruled out by by mm. by just about everyone by the Greens. Um, but that is uh, Labor trying to, I think, come back in. So take a stake in uh, houses for uh, people on low incomes to, you know, help them buy their first home, for example. Mm. Do you, is it is it just piecemeal, too small, not not? So I, I actually really like the idea of shared equity. Um, I think if if part of our goal is to definancialize and decommodify housing i think um creating incentives for people to buy their lifelong home and stay in it is a good thing and giving the government a stake in it is also is also a good thing um i think the issue with everything that's being proposed by this government is really the scale of their ambition. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the scale of the things that they're doing just does not match the the scale of the crisis. And I think part of it is that they're afraid to spend money. And they're also, we, we know they're afraid to raise money. Um, we know how you raise money for housing. It's by, you know, by dealing with the tax concessions and they've obviously been burned, um, you know, burned by that whole experience in 2019. But in 2019, they were proposing this regime of, of tax reform, lim limiting negative gearing to to new to new builds, um, which deals with which, the issue that Maria w was yeah. was raising earlier. You know, reform of capital gains tax discount, um, and they were a lot of people don't know this, but they were also proposing to build two hundred and fifty thousand new social and affordable rentals. That is enormous. The Albanese government, if it hits its target, could build up to thirty thousand. Yeah. So that is less than we're set to lose over the next five-year period. <laughs> so it's it's not the same transformative agenda. It's good stuff, um, and I certainly wouldn't want to get in the way of the 10,000 people who could benefit from help to buy. Um, well, the Greens or, do or, plan to get in the way or, of it. And I, I wouldn't want to get in the way of the up to 30,000 people who could benefit from the Housing Future Fund, but um, it's it, is it a structural solution to the housing crisis? I wouldn't say. The Greens yeah. do, sorry, Maria, just yeah. just on that point, though, the Greens do plan to get in the way of it, or at least mm. that's what they're saying at the moment. They want to see those other mm. changes and without them they may block this mm. help to buy scheme. Uh, I think you're a former Green staffer, correct? Mm. Um, not not, <laughs> no, no, not, not, I, no, not involved I appreciate in anything that. that's currently I appreciate happening. that. But, but, yep. um, yeah. uh, just wondering what you're thinking about that is because that could end up just frustrating any progress on this mm. were, were it to come to pass. I don't know whether this is just the sort of, you know, sabre rattling that goes on in negotiations, whether it will come to that. But um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see where this lands because last year the Greens ended up passing the half and that's a housing. That's uh, the Housing Australia Future Fund. Yeah. Sorry, I need to get better at the. Uh, I, I I do get pulled up on it from time to time. The the uh, housing <laughs> jargon. Um, the they they did pass the Housing Future Fund, and 
we also got the biggest injection into social housing since the GFC, $3 billion uh, into, into social housing that probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have been delivered if not for the negotiations on the fund. Just on that, I thought yeah. Labor should have given the Greens more credit for that yeah. because they tried to sell it that it was completely separate yeah. from any of those negotiations. Well, and I understand why you would yeah. do that, but giving the Greens a win might not have been such a bad thing. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, given that they can't yeah. give them a win on some other things, I feel like if the Greens are going to play hardball, they can. You know, they can. They can yeah. it hasn't stopped them from going out and claiming. No, I, <laughs> claiming I know. I just win. thought it was. A, but, but I thought I, it was a curious political decision. I think. I think it'll depend on how successful. You know, how successful they are in extracting something and whether they do end up passing it or not. The challenge the government has with help to buy is that it doesn't have. Um, the kind of institutional support that the Housing Future Fund had because you had super companies who wanted it, um, you had um, community housing providers who wanted it because it, it kind of gave them a, a new funding pipeline to, to start building, you know, non-profit housing. The help to buy shared equity scheme, besides the people who directly benefit from it, there's no one like asking for it. And so last year there were a whole lot of groups that were sort of calling on the Greens to to just pass this, you know. And I wonder if that's going to happen this year and and whether that that changes what's yeah. going to happen. The, the help to buy, yeah. so if I, if I understand correctly, is not really the Australian way, but it absolutely underwrote public housing schemes um, mm. in other parts of the world. So in Canada or, or like, you know, the Scandinavian countries, and it was essentially part of a sort of industry plan. And so these houses were literally built in 48 hours, right? Like basically from modular bits. And so, you know, Ikea is a, is a legacy of that. It was sort of like the modular furniture that you put in your modular house that could be built in literally two days, high quality housing. Most of them are still standing today. And, and it That's was- encouraging. Yeah. And it was Green's policy at the last election. And, and you know, and I think, um, and I think it is still on their books. It's just that because it's quite a foreign concept here, because no one's asking for it, right? It's like there's an educative dimension mm. um, to to doing that. And so, yes, you know, like if we really did want to build like a lot more housing a lot faster, like there are there are there are models out mm. there that we know work that like could work. Well, perhaps in doing 40s, this, right? Perhaps doing this and then being able to scale it up is 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 a way of of getting through this political morass uh, because mm. it is it does it, it dramatically reduce the entry price for first home. Ownership, forty um, percent for uh, new homes. I think thirty percent for existing homes is the uh, sort of equity stake. I think. Yeah. So that's that's pretty considerable, and but it but it only does apply to a very small number at the moment, and so it'd be interesting to see whether that's um, something that if it does get up, whether it can be scaled up after that. I mean, just in the time we have got left, I want to go to the politics of this mm. because. Um, Maria, I'm particularly interested in your, your view about this when we think about stage three tax cuts, for example. Labor took the decision to, which I think has been vindicated, to redraw, re-engineer re, re the stage three tax cuts, make them fairer and so forth. Um, and looks like that has worked. But there's a real there's a real sense that I get from Labor that they they have fired their one broken policy shot in the locker. They don't feel like they can add negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions to this, notwithstanding the huge amount of pressure coming from uh, industry, you know, policy experts and from the Greens and others from the progressive side of politics. Do you think Labor could, does have does Labor have any room to move here on negative gearing? Well, I, I, think, I think actually we should take a, a, a step back and, and I'll say two things. One, um, look, tax reform has to be on some government's agenda very, very soon. Our our tax system is a Byzantine sort of system of pipe cleaners and sticky tape and tissue paper full of all of these sort of like ridiculous kind of concessions, which was the point of the Henry Tax Review. Mm. Like whether or not you liked or agreed with the last government's tax policy, like it was actually in effect an implementation of the Henry Tax Review's proposal to in part deal with the problem of bracket creep, right, and and an over-reliance on income taxes. And that means taxing wealth, right, mm. taking on land tax and getting rid of stamp duty, which is inefficient, which is a state government issue, right, or taking on the capital gains concession or franking credits or family trusts, which are all ways of taxing wealth over 
income. And so, you know, whilst the government can't necessarily, I suppose, feel like it uh, can break any sort of promises, it's sort of actually in a bit of a political bind. Like if it doesn't take up tax policy to the next election, the coalition will very helpfully make it up for them. I mean, if, if I could say something oh. about that, um, the Resolve poll that you mentioned earlier, only one in four people actually oppose changes to to capital gains tax uh, discounts and negative gearing. Because most right. people don't know what it um, is. And that's yeah. right. I mean, nobody knows what it is. The people who benefit from it feel like it's helping them in some way, but they don't quite understand how it works. And renters don't like it. Uh, they know it's screwing them somehow, but they also don't don't quite understand how it works. But we do know that more and more people are becoming concerned about the impact that this is having, even people who've directly benefited. I'm going to be at an event with Alan Kohler next week, and I read his quarterly essay over the summer. And one of the things he said in there really struck me. He said, if the bank, I, I don't, I should check where this number actually comes from, but he said, if the bank of mum and dad was an actual bank, it would be the biggest home lender in the country. <laughs> so I think people who have benefited from these concessions actually know that they are now having to turn around and really subsidise the next generation to get into housing because of the way things are just really inflamed. I think there is appetite to do something about it. People forget that in 2016, Labor took tax reform around negative gearing and capital gains tax to an election and won 14 seats. Mm. And we can see that there uh, isn't the strong, numerically, there isn't the scale of opposition that we might think there is. The people who oppose it are obviously powerful and noisy, but it is possible to, to make change. And I think the role of campaigns like ours is to create the space for the government to do that. It's not just about housing. You want good mm. aged care, you want mm. good childcare, you want good schools. Well, I mean, the budget currently can't fund this stuff. You know, like So we need politicians who can actually yeah. political leaders who can actually explain that, who are good at mm. uh enunciating all of those uh, imperatives, balancing them with the policy that needs to be policy changes that need to be considered to bring them about. And that's that's not what modern politics is uh, very well suited to anymore. That that idea of running long campaigns, floating relatively complex and controversial ideas and selling them. But I would say that the conditions have structurally improved from where they were 10 years ago. And I sort of mean this in a broader sort of, uh, you know, the way the media is constructed and social media and all of that. But the reality is, is that the country is literally running out of runway. Like we either make these changes to to tax and we continue to live the good life in this country or we don't and we create a country of haves and haves nots and we actually have lots of examples around the world about how that, that ends and it, it actually sinks all boats. Yeah, that's right. Look, we're going to have to wrap things up there. It's been a terrific discussion um, and there's much to watch in this space over what's going to be a critical political period, the, the last trimester, if I can put it in those terms, yeah. Maria, of the uh, Albanese term uh, leading into the election, which is by any uh, sort of estimation, I suppose, somewhere between, you know, 10 and 14 months from now, uh, probably in early 2025. Um, and we'll see how some of these issues play out, but we'll see how this issue in particular plays out, this issue of the help to buy scheme and the, the Greens um, uh, negotiations in the Senate with the government and what the government's going to do, whether there's going to be any concessions given and um, uh, changes made to, to Labor's offering. All of that's going to be quite fascinating to watch and we'll be I think ensuring one way or another that housing remains a very big issue, perhaps the critical issue uh, leading into the next election. May Aziz, thanks so much for coming in again. Thanks uh, for having me. Really nice to have you. Thanks, Maria, for what will be your last appearance for a little while. Yes, yes. Enjoy, everyone. Enjoy the political year. Um, I'll no doubt talk to you occasionally. Indeed, we'll look forward to that. And um, I think we'll probably be a bit late with the Democracy Sausage next week, uh, just for reasons of uh, availability, mine and others. So uh, probably be a day or so late with the episode. So if you bear with us for that, and we'll look forward to talking to you then. That's it from Australian National University. Bye for now. <laughs>